And this is Stacy Harbaugh and Allison Markowski with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said that he wants the investigation into the 2020 presidential election finished by the end of the month, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Voss, who originally ordered the taxpayer-funded investigation, has asked former Supreme Court Justice and lead investigator Michael Gaberman for recommendations by February so that any legislation can be passed by the end of this session. The statement comes after legal fights over subpoenas issued to Wisconsin mayors and top elections officials still remain unresolved. Attorney General Josh Call filed a lawsuit to block subpoenas against Megan Wolf, the administrator for the Wisconsin Elections Commission, that is set to hear a ruling on Monday. A separate lawsuit filed by Gableman seeks to force the mayors of Madison and Green Bay to commit to closed doors interviews or face jail time. A hearing for the lawsuit is scheduled for January 21st. And in a seemingly contradictory move, Robin Voss has also come to a verbal agreement with former Supreme Court Justice Gableman to extend his contract for at least two more months. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that, though nothing has been formally written, the extension looks to give Gableman more time to create recommendations. Gableman's contract with the state, which was supposed to end last month, has cost taxpayers $676,000 so far. UW-Madison is looking for public input in determining candidates to be their next chancellor. The Capital Times reports that the university will host community listening sessions throughout the next month. The search comes after current chancellor Rebecca Blank announced in October that she will be leaving the university to become the president of Northwestern University in Illinois. The listening sessions will be open to all, to provide the UW-Madison Search and Screen Committee with thoughts about what the ideal candidate would be. The university will offer a recommendation for the new hire to the UW Board of Regents by mid-May. The first of these listening sessions will take place on Monday and is targeted at staff for the university. For more information on the listening sessions, you can find it on the UW-Madison website. And today is the one-year anniversary of the armed insurrection at the nation's capital. And over one year later, and one year later, six Wisconsinites who participated in the attack have been charged, but have received little to no jail time, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Across the nation, more than 700 people have been charged for taking part in the attack. A slate of politicos released statements today on. T- today's one-year anniversary, mostly falling along political and ideological lines. We will have an interview with Congressman Mark Pocan later in the show. The Madison School District will return to in-person learning on Monday after a brief return to virtual learning today, reports the Capital Times. The Madison School Board first held a public meeting last night to discuss the decision, but left the final decision to Superintendent Carlton Jenkins. Jenkins says that though in-person schooling returns on Monday, schools or classrooms may need to briefly close if they hit staffing shortages. 
The Madison Metro School District added 251 new cases among students and faculty over the past week, which is the highest number of cases in one week since August. And meanwhile, labor unions and faith leaders expressed opposition this week to a resolution coming before the Dane County Board tonight regarding mask mandates. The resolution was authored by County Board Supervisor Jeff Wigand and, if approved, would be a statement by the County Board to the local public health department asking to end the mask mandate. County Board Chair Annalise Eicher reaffirmed the authority of Public Health Madison, Dane County, to issue orders to protect the health of local residents from the spread of the coronavirus. Groups speaking out against the resolution include Wisconsin Faith Voices for Justice, Wisconsin Council of Churches, and the South Central Central Federation of Labor. Eicher said, quote, This resolution is simply a statement. It's really interesting that we've gotten to this point, but also not surprising, end quote. And now on to today's top stories. Record COVID-19 numbers across the state are causing hospitals to delay procedures, and staffing shortages are hitting places like schools hard, too. But as the state sees its third straight day of record COVID numbers, an inkling of good news, too. Expanded testing resources are coming to Dane County, and Wisconsin receives its first shipment of antiviral COVID drugs. WORT producer Nate Weggehout took a look at all the news in the latest COVID wave. Yesterday broke another record for COVID cases in Wisconsin, with the state confirming 11,547 new cases on Wednesday. This is now the third day in a row with new record numbers of confirmed COVID cases across the state. Dane County is also experiencing a wave as the county hit record numbers of 1,939 confirmed cases yesterday. The majority of these cases came from people aged 23 to 39, according to data from Public Health Madison in Dane County. For the two weeks over the holidays from December 20th to January 2nd, Dane County saw an average of 695 cases per day. Nearly one out of every 50 Dane County residents had a positive PCR test in that period. Ken Van Horn, testing director with Public Health Madison in Dane County, says that the wave is putting extra stress on tests. We're facing a perfect storm of testing demand from a number of different factors. Increased Omicron tests, increased testing over the holidays as people wanted to travel and gather with loved ones, and then two weeks of decreased testing availability because of Christmas Eve and Christmas and New Year's Eve and New Year's. So all of those factors have sort of combined to create a backlog of testing demand, and we expect that to continue, if not to rise. Today, Public Health Madison in Dane County announced that the Alliant Energy Center will return to a testing center starting next Monday. The testing site will look a bit different with park and walk up rather than a drive through Van Horn says that the appointment-based walk-in system will be more efficient. Drive-up testing is really inefficient for staff. We need a lot more staff per test to operate a drive through and it is dramatically more expensive, um, not just because of staff, but because of the physical facilities and the fact that those have to be leased and those facilities have to be so much larger in order to uh, handle a large amount of traffic that is that's kind of continuously moving uh, versus a parking lot. It's difficult when there's a big ebb and flow 
Um, and there's, you know, huge lines in the morning and then in the afternoon we're sitting with staff not having much testing to do. By evenly spreading out these appointments throughout the day, it keeps our staff operating at maximum capacity all day long. And that means we can do more tests with less people. The rise in cases is also putting a major strain on Madison hospitals. Several local hospitals, including SSM St. Mary's, Unity Point Meritor, and UW Health, have announced that they are postponing surgeries and procedures, citing staff shortages and an influx of COVID-19 patients. Tracy DeSalvo is the director of the Bureau of Communicable Diseases with the State Health Department. She says hospitals statewide are experiencing something similar. Statewide, 97% of intensive care beds and 98% of immediate care beds are currently in use. There are 2,002 people currently hospitalized with COVID-19 in Wisconsin, and 464 of them are in the ICU. Hospitals are under tremendous strain right now due to COVID-19 and the Omicron variant. According to Public Health Madison in Dane County, 179 people are hospitalized in the county with the virus currently, with 39 people in intensive care as of 2 p.m. this afternoon. Another reason for the strain is a rise in positive cases amongst the staff. The surge of COVID-19 cases is causing turbulence in Madison schools as well. Students in the Madison Metro School District returned to virtual learning today after having a last-minute extended winter break earlier this week. District officials say the pause was partly due to an impact in staffing levels, plus a limited supply of testing resources and protective equipment. Earlier this afternoon, district officials announced a return to in-person learning next Monday. Meanwhile, the state health department has just received its first shipment of Molnupirnovir and Paxlovid, new antiviral pills recently approved by the FDA that can be used to minimize the effects of COVID-19. Ajay Sethi is an epidemiologist and professor of population health sciences at UW-Madison. He says that the pills are designed to be taken by those at higher risk of severe infection, while the case is still mild. Uh, there are two drugs. One is called Molnupirnovir and the other one is called Plexovid. They can be taken at home. Uh, they're oral pills. They don't require you to be in a hospital or a healthcare facility set up with an IV. So that's convenient. They need to be taken within five days of when symptoms appear. And of course, you have to be actually diagnosed with COVID. But the supply of those pills are limited. They're reserved for those most at risk and require a prescription. Everyone WORT talked to today had one important thing to say. Wear a mask, avoid gatherings, and get your vaccine and booster shot. Vaccination continues to be the best form of defense against the virus. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy Howe. It is now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. There's a new issue of Isthmus on the newsstands today. And WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with senior reporter Dylan Brogan about his story, 
Rocky Start, which takes a look at the first year of Madison's Police Civilian Oversight Board. I'm here with Dylan Brogan, senior reporter for the Isthmus newspaper and author of the story Rocky Start, which looks at the tumultuous first year for the Madison Police Civilian Oversight Board. Dylan, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning there. When did the board start and what did the OIR group suggest for Madison's police department? Yeah, this is going back about six years now, so... We'll just do the short version. A lot of city committees, a $400,000 consultant agency, uh, a lot of public input. And the result uh, in the, in 2020, in the spring, um, was the creation of not only this new pol- police civilian oversight board, but this new like accountability tool for, uh, for the police uh, called the Office of the Independent Monitor. So... It was sort of stalling a little bit in 2020, and then uh, George Floyd was killed by a Minneapolis police officer, and then it passed in August. So this is supposed to be a a new community-centered way to hold the police accountable. So it it is a very powerful board, uh, and this office is very powerful as well. So with things with a lot of power, it will generate a bit of controversy, and the board has seen quite a bit of that in its short life so far. So let's start with some of the lawsuits, which is the controversy yeah. is where your article mostly looks at. Yes. There. So this was uh, supposed to be, you know, Wisconsin is a little bit unique in that we have these public um, fire commi- or police and fire commissions, right? And those, hey, those citizens on those boards. But uh, this is supposed to be new, and it's also supposed to represent folks who uh, historically have not been treated very well by the police. Uh, and so that's how they structured the board, saying, um, you know, there needs to be an African-American. There needs to be someone of Asian descent. There needs to be a Native American. Uh, what was another one? Uh, it said 40 percent of the members have to have, like, lived experience with uh, mental illness or incarceration or uh, other. Uh, what's, let's, let me get this right. Uh, 40% of members with lived experience with homelessness, mental health, substance abuse, and or arrest or conviction records. So uh, that, uh, the, just the way it was set up was to make sure that lots of folks of color were involved in this new board, right? Well, one lawsuit came about because of a, a local conservative uh, and former county board supervisor, supervisor David Blaska. Uh, he applied. He did not get on this board, Right. And uh, he now has a federal lawsuit with uh, the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, basically saying the way they pick these board members is unconstitutional, be, and he wasn't picked because he is white, and that there was only one out of, uh, or I think it's two out of nine seats that he was even eligible for. So that's moving forward. That was right. Uh, you know, that's one thing that is looming over the board, too. It's also just been difficult um, to be on this board because it's brand new. And usually there's some institutional knowledge and some like staff support to, you know, to help these citizen boards that are, uh, you know, part time, very part time, uh, get up and running. And that just, you know, this is supposed to be independent from city government. But that independence is also mean like all this work of setting up this brand new agency is falling on these board members. And the one thing that they've really been focused on this last year is hiring this independent monitor. That's taken a year. They got down to one finalist, and then that finalist is uh, not going to be taking the job. So they're back to square one. So they've been around for over a year, and they haven't even really started holding the police accountable in any way. 
So that's kind of a big problem. Yeah, yeah. I, but also a little bit inevitable, right? Uh, and some of these are unforeseen consequences. So that's just a, a taste of kind of what this board has been given a really difficult task to do, and they're very slowly getting it done. So you talked about one of the lawsuits there. The other one, uh, the newest one, is from former police, military police officer, I should say, Eric Hill. Uh, can you tell, sort of walk me through what his complaints were? Yes. Yeah, so that is a little bit different, and it's like a discrimination complaint that's being filed locally and with the state. And he was saying he wasn't f- hired uh, or considered for the independent monitor job uh, because he it, it was a military police officer. And then he has brought up a lot of anti-police comments and other uh, things that these board members have put on social media and saying, hey, look, uh, they were biased against me. So uh, the city attorney's office is handling both of them. I would say the discrimination complaint, they've been pretty forward about saying it doesn't have any merits. But who knows with this big federal lawsuit, you know, if it if it is ruled unconstitutional, it's not going to be by some conservative judge. It's going to be, you know, uh, it's going to be by a judge who, um, you know, is pretty neutral in all this. So I wanted to ask you, both of these uh both the lawsuit and the complaint are still ongoing. Do yes. Do you have any idea when, how long these sort of things are going to take to resolve themselves? Well, I heard um, from at least the the Wisconsin Institute Law and Liberty lawsuit. Now, remember, this firm is very good at uh, advocacy law for Republican causes and have been very successful statewide. So. These are good lawyers that, and uh, they are, what I heard from their, their client, David Blaska, is that, you know, maybe they'll reach a settlement. I don't know. There's a trial scheduled in November. So we'll see what happens. It could be nothing, but it could just like, you know, basically undo the whole board and, and then they truly have to start all over again. Finally, one of the big things on there, as all things sort mm-hmm. of do, comes down to sort of money with the board yes. chair, Keetra Burnett, receiving an she didn't receive it. No, she has not received it. Uh, $20,000 honorarium. Yes. So we have a lot of boards in this city, and mo- like vast majority of them are volunteer. Now, this is a very unique circumstance, and no one denies that uh, the chair of this Police Civilian Oversight Board has done a lot of work in the hiring process. Uh, but th- kind of how, in a roundabout way, and it really speaks to the naivety and how some of these board members are just not experienced with uh, city politics, is that uh, since they didn't spend the money for an independent monitor that they were supposed to hire, that they thought they could redirect the funds um, to give a one-time payment, essentially, to this chair who, you know, everyone says did a lot of work. Well, uh, you know, they're going to need they're going to need alders in order to do that. Uh, and it doesn't appear. And I talked to several alders who say it's not going anywhere. And it also just raises some ethical questions about, uh, you know, you're supposed to not advocate for finance, you know, a financial gain when you're on one of these city boards. And it was very clear that the chair was was doing that to some extent. I don't think it was to be, you know, be I think uh, she has done a lot of work, and she's really stepped up because, like I said, there's no staff members, right? There's not a city staff, or there's not this independent monitor to lead this new division. So a lot has fallen on this volunteer board. But, uh, you know, just how this was done at the end of the year is they spent a lot of time talking about how they were going to give this one-time payment to their chair, and it went nowhere. So this board that's already taking forever to set up this office is... Spending hours debating, uh, you know, paying themselves essentially when it wasn't going to go anywhere if they, you know, sort of had, if they, if they had talked to alders and sort of 
understand that, uh, yeah, this nobody was going for this, whether it's deserved or not. So looking sort of forward at this point, what comes next for the board? Will they need to, as far as looking for a new independent police monitor, will they need to basically start over from scratch? That's going to be interesting because they did get down, they did interview uh, at least 10 people. I think they had 30 applicants. Uh, they're going to have to start over in one respect is they, they definitely have to start the process over. Maybe it'll go a little bit quicker now since they have identified, you know, people who um, weren't, didn't make it to the finalists uh, round, but maybe almost did, right? So that could speed things along. But I think, yeah, it's uh, when this thing is taking a long time to get set up and then it, you think you got someone hired uh, and then that doesn't work out, well, now it's going to be another few months and probably over a year until this uh, this new check on the police that's supposed to have be very community-centered and supposed to they'll have subpoena power and to investigate and have all access to mass and police records. And it it's a relatively new thing, but there are other cities that are doing it and it's working out well. Well, you know, it took five years of talking about it. It might take another two or three to set it up. And that's that's kind of what the article is about, is explaining, uh, you know, the origins of this and the, this rocky first year and also when hopefully this board will be up and running and doing what's in, you know, what it was intended. It was passed, I think, almost unanimously by the city council. Uh, the, the mayor's office or the mayor, uh, Satya Rhodes Conway, um, you know, has made no indication that she's anything but super supportive of the independent monitor office. But we're leaving a, a committee of uh, citizens and uh, who aren't getting paid uh, full time to work on something. And, you know, it's just a lot of work and it's taken a long time. Dylan, is there anything else you'd like to add about uh, this story here? That this you is a wrote? good one to pick up uh, in the the paper um, and, you know, pour yourself a cup of coffee and there's lots of good stuff in there. And yeah, new issues are all over town. So go pick one up. You delivered them uh, just this morning. Yes, I did. (laughs) 6,000 of them. I've been speaking with Dylan Brogan, senior reporter for the Isthmus newspaper. You can read his story, Rocky Start, which takes a look at the Madison's Police Civilian Oversight Board in the newest issue of the Isthmus, which you can find in Madison right now. Dylan, Thank you for talking with me today. Thank you, Nate. You're listening to Local News by Local People here on WORT. Stay with us. We have a lot more for you coming up in the second half of the show. We'll reflect on the Capitol insurrection one year ago today. We'll set open records resolutions for 2022 and a history of textiles with Radio Chipstone. But for now, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. We'll be back in a flash. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Allison Markoski, here with my co-host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us tonight. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the armed insurrection in Washington, D.C. And Wisconsin Representative Mark Pocan was right across the street that day, watching the offense unfold. Morning Buzz host Tony Castaneda spoke with Pocan on today's Morning Buzz about the insurrection. Joining me on the line, I'm very pleased to have our congressional representative from the 2nd District here, uh, Mark Pocan. Mark, good morning. 
good morning, Tony. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for uh, agreeing to come on. Well, this is the one-year anniversary of uh, of the, uh, uh, what shall we say, the armed insurrection in the U.S. Capitol by a, a large contingent of Donald Trump supporters. You were in Washington, D.C. that day. Uh, uh, you were not at the at the Capitol, but can you just tell me a little bit about, uh, if you don't mind, go back a year ago and tell me uh, how you saw things uh, unfolding on that day, if you could. Sure, sure. Well, I was just across the street in my office. We uh, were preparing for them to challenge Wisconsin's Electoral College uh, votes that day. Seven states were expected to be challenged, so uh, the Wisconsin Democrat delegation was going to lead that hour. But, um, you, you know, it, it's what's the most odd, Tony, is that day everyone, Democratic, Republican alike, spoke with outrage, you know, spoke clearly about what was happening and here we are a year later, and um, people have uh, gone silent or outright changed their tune to complete lies, especially given this is all on video. We've all seen it with our eyes. Uh, you know, that day, uh, you know, colleagues of mine, Republicans from Wisconsin, were on TV saying, Donald Trump, call off your supporters. And now uh, you can't hear them say a, a syllable about what happened on January 6th. And you know, I think that's the real tragedy is, you know, this was an attack on our republic, uh, on the democracy itself. Uh, when you have people try to do an armed insurrection, uh, the first, by the way, since the War of 1812, uh, where there was a breach on the U.S. Capitol. And to watch people now in Congress call it another tourist day in Washington uh, to completely whitewash what happened, to not want to participate in a panel uh, to figure out exactly what happened, because uh, this will be a scar on our nation's history. That, that's the most, I guess, sad part of it all is, you know, this was a moment that kind of unified people on that day. And then, you know, ever since then, the Republican Party, you know, has proven that it's less of a political party and more of a, a cult of an individual, uh, Donald Trump. And, you know, whatever he says goes. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, your colleague, uh, uh, Representative Ruben Gallegos from uh, Arizona just yesterday was critical of uh, Merrick Garland uh, in the Department of Justice and saying that they're not acting quick enough, that they're not uh, like a lot of us. We're like, well, what the heck? It's, it seems pretty clear that this wasn't a, a coup attempt. And yes, you're arresting and you're uh, charging the grunts, the pawns, the the people that were actually uh, did this action. But what about the planners? How do you feel about Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice in terms of their pace or their uh, approach to what happened last year? Do you, I mean, are, do you think they should be moving quicker? Do you think that indictments should be coming down already on some of the leaders and, and possibly even towards Donald Trump? Well, I do think that they should be enforcing subpoenas immediately, right? That should be a no-brainer. I think the, the challenge that they're having that I disagree with is, you know, uh, some of the people that were in the government at the time, do they have any sorts of immunity through uh, our federal laws? And I think that's what's slowing it down for them. Don't forget, Steve Bannon wasn't. Uh, They did act quickly on him. And, you know, we need to do that, though, with everyone, because we can't just prolong this process uh, into years and years. We need to get the answers right now, because it's important for the public to know what happened. It's important for us to know what happened. Just this week, we had Capitol Police and the Sergeant of Arms sit down with us and talk about new security procedures and other things they're putting in place that they've learned because of January 6th. We need to be just as as swift in dealing with this 
from the perspective of the Department of Justice. What of the role of social media, uh, especially the giant outlets, in um, continuing to allow misinformation to be spread, not only about the uh, election, but about other things? But but what about now? And what do you think? Do you think there should be constraints put on the big social media giants in terms of allowing this misinformation to be spread? Yeah, I mean, the simple answer, Tony, would be yes, but I also have to say that with a giant asterisk that I I am a strong believer of the First Amendment, um, and I think we have to be very careful that whatever we do uh, doesn't take us into a place that runs uh, counter to that. However, when some of the outright racism and Nazism and go down the list of things that cannot just be uh, allowed to go unchecked, lies, they do need to have some uh, we need some way to make sure that they have some controls over those platforms as well. And, you know, it's one thing to ban Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, for her lies on Twitter, but uh, and Donald Trump, to their credit, uh, eventually on Twitter. But, you know, I see plenty of it every single day that people are believing, and I get it back from people uh, via that social media. And at some point, we do need better checks and balances uh, within that system. Um, but as we do that, we have to respect the First Amendment as well. And I do think um, that's going to be a bit of a challenge. Where do we go today, a year after the uh, attack by Trump supporters of the U.S. Capitol and the attempt to delay or uh, obstruct the normal functioning of our government? Where are we now? What 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 does the future hold? Well, one, us? never forget, right? You know, we can't let their revisionist history change uh, what we saw and heard and experienced on January 6th. Um, because it's too important for our democracy. It's too important for the institution of Congress, regardless of political affiliation. So I think that's really important. But to, you know, hold those accountable um, who spread the lies. You know, we have a one U.S. senator who's been amazing, Tammy Baldwin, as she always is. And we have another U.S. senator who's been uh, one of the main <laughs> purveyors of many of these falsehoods. And, you know, I think the best way uh, that you can, you know, have your voice heard is, Uh, about who is serving in office to represent you. And if people are going to lie, cheat, or steal in order to stay in office, uh, we need to use our vote, which is the one thing that they right now still aren't able to fully take away. We need to make sure we use that voice and get out there and do our our civic duty. All right. uh, U.S. Representative uh, Mark Polkant. Mark, thanks so much for being uh, on the show here. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. Every other Thursday, contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open government issues. This week on Transparency Talk, the two chat about New Year's resolutions for a more transparent government. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you doing in this fine new year? I'm doing great, Jonah. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Tom. You know what? It might be a new year, but we're facing down a lot of the same old issues from last year and prior years when it comes to transparency and openness in government. So this episode, we want to look ahead to 2022, talk about some of our resolutions for transparency in the new year. Tom, take me from there, you know, what do you want record custodians to start doing in 2022? 
if this is my list of resolutions for record custodians, and because I don't want to be entirely one-sided at the end, I'll get to some resolutions for people making record requests too. But my number one wish list that I think record custodians should resolve to do in the new year is to finally sit down and calculate how much it costs to make one photocopy of one piece of paper. Hmm. Because way too many of them just pick a number out of thin air, and that number is almost always 25 cents. And do you know why so many record custodians have 25 cents per page as their copy fee? I'm going to take a wild guess because that was the number that was settled on 20 years ago or something. Wasn't even settled on, but it was a, a suggestion in the attorney general's guide. They got rid of this, thankfully, a few years ago. But before that, it used to read in the in the compliance guide that this number should probably be about 15 cents a page and anything over 25 cents a page is suspect. Of course, basically, everybody treated that as permission to charge 25 cents per page. But back in 2018, the attorney general took another look at that and said, you know what, that's not really right. The law says your actual cost, and it has to be your necessary and your direct cost, too. So here's what custodians should do. They should go through and do these calculations. And primarily, that's how much does the paper cost? You buy a ream of paper, costs less than 10 bucks, usually for 500 sheets. So you're talking between one and two cents a page or a lot less if you're buying in bulk. And how much does your copier cost? Now, if if you're a larger organization, you might lease your copiers and there's a very small per page charge on it. That's pretty easy to figure out. But if you don't have one of those, then you should look at your toner cartridges. How much are your cartridges rated for? How many pages will they print in black and white? And printers too have like expected lifespan. So you can find out what's the cost of your printer and your toner and how many pages do you get off of that? That's what they're supposed to do. And when the DOJ did that, they found out their their pieces of paper when they're making photocopies, it costs them about a penny per page for black and white. And that's what they charge now. So I think that custodians should resolve to actually calculate those costs of copies and use that instead of just picking a number out of thin air. And now let's move right along because uh, another item on your New Year's resolutions list is for uh, public officials to resolve to treat open records requests as a priority and a primary job function. You know, I know a lot of people who fill public records requests. Uh, it is it is in addition to several other jobs that they, they handle, correct? Yeah, and um, it's not supposed to be an afterthought. It's not supposed to be a distraction. It says right in the open records law that for the people whose job it is to produce records, this is one of their fundamental and primary job responsibilities. And it's, it's too often treated like it's a distraction and an annoyance that they hope goes away or they hope they don't have to deal with. And I, I really want to see a resolution to have an attitude change on this, that no, this is a priority and a primary job function. And hey, you should look at it this way, record custodians. If you're doing a good job, if your government is doing a good job, you should be happy to show that off to people. Treat that as treat this as an opportunity to highlight the good work you're doing and, and making sure that the taxpayers are getting their value from the work. Resolution number three, and this this is something that's come up a little bit more often for me recently, is to, is they should resolve to organize records in a logical way. I've I've run into this a couple times. So for example, I've run into police departments and other HR departments that will organize complaints by the name of the person who filed the complaint, not the employee who was filed against. So when somebody makes a request and see, I want to see all the complaints filed against Officer Smith, 
The police department says, well, we can't search by Officer Smith. We have to search by complainant's name. Do you know the name of the person whose complaint you're seeking? No, of course not. That's not the point. It makes no sense to organize them that way. And this shows up in a lot of different ways, but just in general, there's it, it, it causes so many high location fees. When, it, when the government officials are telling you, yeah, it's going to take us 20 hours to search for all this material, that's a good sign that they are not organizing their records in, in logical and easy to search ways. So I think they should resolve to do so, which not only will make their job easier when they need to use these records, because they do use these records, it will make responding to record requests cheaper. Uh, but hey, you know what? New Year's resolutions are a two-way street. And while, you know, we'd like to see government officials do a lot of things better, uh, requesters, uh, you know, we've also we've also got room for improvement. Tom, tell me what you would like me as a public records requester to be better about in the new year. Yeah, we can do things better, too. And it's not just requesters, but this is kind of for myself, too. And I think one of the first ones is to, to resolve to talk more over the phone, in person, whatever it is, and email less. I think it, we love email because it's so quick and convenient, but there's so many ways it can go wrong. Things get misunderstood. Tone gets lost in emails. You shoot off an email real quick in your spare time, but somebody sees it and they don't necessarily feel they need to respond right away. Whereas if you're talking to somebody on the phone, they're not going to you know, sit and wait on, and on, on the line for 10 minutes before they answer you. You're going to get some kind of response right away. So you know, maybe before you make the request, call up somebody and find out, hey, who's the person I'm supposed to send this to? So sometimes that's not clear and they can usually tell you that. But if you get a response that you don't like from a record custodian, don't jump to conclusions and don't, don't throw up your hands. Maybe give them a call and say, you know, hey, here's what I'm really looking for. I don't quite understand what you're telling me in this response. Can you explain this more? Or can you explain... A little bit what's under this redaction here it's a big block and you gave me five different things you were redacting i don't understand what's redacted here can you explain that to me just trying to make more connections with people and get through things instead of sending off huffy emails and that kind of gets into into resolve number two perhaps which is to to not always assume the worst i get a lot of reactions from people who are telling me how others they're, they're absolutely certain that the custodians are trying to hide something and they're going to all this effort to make things difficult for them. And to be fair, like we talked about previously, these people are usually doing a lot of different stuff and your request is not taking up all their thoughts and all their energy at work, probably. It's, it's, a, it's a minor thing that they a couple minutes of work into and they're not thinking about it all the time. So remember that custodians are human. They have bad days and good days. They may write something that isn't quite what they mean, that doesn't come across quite the way they want. And that ties back into the first one. Make a phone call, talk to somebody. And hey, if you need a more incentive to do that, remember psychologically, it's a lot harder for people to say no if they're talking on the phone than it is uh, just doing it in writing. All right. Well, we have come to the end of this segment. So everybody, you know what? Go into the new year with these resolutions in mind. Try not to assume the worst about people, especially open records custodians. A lot of them actually want to help you out. I've been joined on the other end of the line for this episode by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks so much for joining me again this week. Jonah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
Textiles play an important role in our lives, whether in the carpet beneath our feet or in the mask on our face. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, art historian Jennifer Fields spoke with Kendra Greendeer and Dakota Mace, curators of the exhibit entitled Intersections, Indigenous Textiles of the Americas. In this part one of the series, where the conversation started by honoring the ancestors and paying respect to the makers of the textiles on display. Talk to me about the decision to start this exhibit off with ancestors. Uh, So the reason why we wanted to start with ancestors was because we wanted to not only acknowledge our own history, but our elders and the people that came before us in the way that they've inspired us creatively, as well as the way that weaving has transitioned within the last, you know, thousand years. But for us, especially within Indigenous communities, our ancestors are what we learn from and what we uh, reference back to with a lot of our knowledge systems. So for us to start with ancestors, that was a push away from the way that a lot of museums would usually display objects that were before pre-contact and everything. So for within Ancestors, we have objects that come from burial sites in Peru, and this was our way of not only acknowledging their presence, but also how they still have an impact on contemporary Indigenous people today. So for us in this exhibition, we wanted to be able to be as sensitive as possible. So this is also, again, another thing that we wanted to include for Indigenous people is that burial objects are distinguished very differently in various Indigenous communities. So we wanted to put a sign up and that is the reason why all of these objects are covered is to give the audience the choice to view whether or not to view that object. So again it's just a way of being knowledgeable for all indigenous people but to give that honor back as well. So Kendra talk to me then about the aspect of allowing people to choose whether or not to view these objects. It's unusual when you walk into a museum setting that you get a choice whether or not you view something. How does the act of my making a choice to view these objects influence or frame my experience. I think it can greatly impact a visitor's experience because most of the time you aren't given that opportunity until you are looking at an object to then realize that this is something very culturally significant that I probably shouldn't be looking at. And I think NAGPRA has allowed for that to become more of an awareness and to separate some of these very significant objects from the rest of collections. So by covering these, we want visitors to feel comfortable and welcomed and that their beliefs are also valued in this space, a space that typically wouldn't cater to an indigenous perspective or even acknowledge that there might be different protocols or values associated with items associated with the dead. So we we just want everyone to have a good time. And to make a decision, right? You have a, yeah, you have a decision to make. I think when you walk in here, and there are many decisions to make. But you mentioned something, Kendra Negpra. What is that? The Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. There's two different ones, and the one that's like national, I believe, was 1991, and this allowed for culturally significant items to be repatriated back to the communities that they came from. This is the first time that I've been in an exhibit, I think, surrounded by this many objects that was constructed, that was written, that was researched by people from the culture. 
that the objects come from. That's unusual. Oh, most definitely. And I'm hoping that that will become a standard across many museums as well, or at least collaborating more openly with the people that are related to those objects. So in telling the stories, is there one Dakota that stuck out to you? Is there a part of this in the writing that surprised you? Yeah, for the most part, a lot of these stories have become, I mean, these objects specifically have come very familiar to me. They feel very much like family or friends, and not only because I've spent so much time with each and every object, but also learning about their histories and the reason why they have so much intention to the groups that they represent. And especially for me, I am Dene, so like all of the Dene objects in this exhibition, I've come really close and personal with and learning about not only my own history a little bit more, but also the way that these objects really impacted Dene people, but also the way that a broader audience kind of views these objects. Is there, Dakota, a cue or are there elements of the objects that signify that it's Dene? Can it be cut back close? Actually, it's not. And that was at least my intention with this exhibition, especially the section called Stories, is that we have a lot of connection in terms of similarities when it comes to designs and materials. And Navajo textiles, Dene textiles, actually are probably the most well-known due to the fact that many people and artists were inspired by these designs. But it actually pops up in multiple indigenous communities. So if you look in the stories section, you can see that not only were stars very prevalent in cultures, but also the colorway that we use for this exhibition is also especially important because we use natural colors and fibers, but, you know, it really impacts the way that indigenous people not only connect to ourselves, but also how we're a lot more interconnected. And that's something I think we wanted for our audience to be able to feel is that we're welcoming them into our community and wanting them to be inspired by it. A lot of it has been writing and rewriting museum standards that I'm used to. I had to reevaluate in order to approach this exhibition because it is finally about Native people, by Native people, and hopefully for Native people as well. And a lot of it has been rethinking our own terminologies. And by beginning the exhibition with the panel ancestors, I mean, that makes it more personal to us because these are all of these objects that we've selected did have a huge effect on us. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jennifer Fields, Tom Kamenek, and Jonah Chester. Thanks also to 8 o'clock Buzz host Tony Castaneda. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Shotley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Allison Markoski. Don't miss an episode of WORT's local news. Hear it as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.